Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, on Christmas night 1951, a bomb exploded under the home of educator and civil rights activist Harry T. Moore. We'll talk with Moore biographer Ben Green. I think it was a political assassination. I don't think it was just some old racist Klansman said, let's take out that uppity so-and-so. We'll discuss how soldiers in Florida for the Second Seminole War celebrated the holidays. Even though it was Christmas, generally they were involved in some sort of military engagement. They were marching, they were drilling, because during the winter months, that was when the U.S. military moved. And Christianity first came to Florida with the Spanish in the 1500s. We'll look at the Catholic mission system. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth, his voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. On Christmas night 1951, a bomb exploded under the home of educator and activist Harry T. Moore. The home was in Mims, Florida, just north of Titusville and east of Orlando. Both Moore and his wife Harriet died from injuries sustained in the blast. The book Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr, is being published in a new edition with updated material. Ben Green is author of this comprehensive biography. Harry Moore grew up in a little place called Houston, uh, outside of Live Oak, which is just really a hole in the wall. I mean, there's just nothing there, no stop sign, traffic light. Um, his father died when he was young. Uh, his father worked on the railroads, taking care of the big water tanks for the steam engines. And his mother worked in the cotton fields, and then she had a little store, basically just a little shack where she sold candy and soda pops and goods like that. After the death of Harry's father, the young boy was sent to live with three aunts in Jacksonville, Florida. All three were well-educated professional women. I think that was the other part, that it he got out of the country and not just living with these three women who were talking politics and literature and world events, but the black community in Jacksonville was vibrant and alive with culture and black owned businesses. So I really think it, it really just opened up the world to him. Harry T. Moore left Jacksonville to become a teacher. He made his way to Brevard County in 1925 to teach at the Coco Colored School and was later promoted to principal of the Titusville Negro School. One of the things uh, about that I don't think many people realize is even as late as the 1930s, only half of the counties in Florida had a black high school. So if you wanted to go to beyond elementary school uh, to school, often you had to go out of town, you had to go away. So Harry left Jacksonville and actually went back to Live Oak and uh, went to Florida Memorial College, which was located there. It was a college, but also had a high school program. So he graduated in 1925 with a normal degree, basically a teaching certificate. 
and got a job in uh, Cocoa teaching in Brevard County. Soon after arriving in Brevard County, Harry T. Moore met his soulmate, Harriet Vita Sims. The couple was married on Christmas Day, 1926. Well, I think that's it's an interesting thing. They were both very sort of sober, serious people. They met at a card party, at a whist party, and she was an older woman. She was like two years older than he was, but obviously they hit it off. Uh, he used to tell his daughters it was love at first sight, uh, and so very quickly they got married, and her parents sort of gave them a piece of land on their property in this grove, and they built a house and started a family. Education was important in the Moore household. The entire family, Harry, Harriet, and daughters Peaches and Evangeline, would all graduate from Bethune-Cookman College in Daytona. Harry T. Moore's civil rights activities, including an effort to equalize pay for black and white teachers, would lead to him being forced to resign from the Brevard County school system. Ben Green. I think he started his activism with what he knew best, which was education. And so uh, through his involvement with the Florida State Teachers Association, which was the black teacher organization, he filed the first lawsuit in the Deep South to equalize black and white teacher salaries. Black teachers, black principals made basically half what their white counterparts did. Uh, that was also the first time that he interacted with Thurgood Marshall. Uh, Thurgood Marshall had filed the first lawsuit, had won the first lawsuit in the country to equalize black and white teacher salaries. But that was in Maryland, border state, um, and Thurgood was working for the NAACP already. So Harry Moore wrote him a letter and said, we, we want to move on this uh, in Florida. And it was the first, I think, of many interactions that they had. After losing his teaching job, Harry T. Moore had more time to dedicate to his civil rights activities. He founded the Brevard County branch of the NAACP and created the Progressive Voters League. There were three big things that he worked on. One was teacher salaries, the other would be voter registration, and then the third would be lynchings. But um, really, this is another juncture where he and Thurgood Marshall came together. Uh, in 1941, Thurgood Marshall won the Supreme Court decision, Smith v. Allwright, that outlawed the white primary, um, which was the only election that mattered in the Deep South. Uh, Harry Moore immediately organized the Progressive Voters League in Florida and started registering black Floridians in the Democratic Party. After forming the Brevard County branch of the NAACP, Moore became active with the organization on the state level. The relationship between Moore and the national office was sometimes contentious. Ben Green, author of Before His Time. This is one of the most surprising things I found when I started doing this book. I thought I was writing a book about an NAACP hero, and I found out that actually there was tremendous tension, conflict between Moore and the national office in New York. I think there were two things. One is his political activism. The NAACP was supposed to be nonpartisan, and Harry T. Moore understood that if you're not registered in the Democratic Party in Florida, it does no good. And so he started pushing to register and eventually registered over 100,000 blacks in the Democratic Party. At the same time, most of the black leadership in the NAACP were Republicans because that was the only party they could be part of and they'd sort of get crumbs thrown their way. And so he built, he got some resentment from 
black leaders in Florida, particularly in big cities, because he was a small town guy. But then more so, I think the national office didn't like it because he became a paid executive secretary and all the money he was raising to pay his own salary could have gone to New York. After Harry T. Moore was killed, the NAACP was quick to claim him as one of their own, even though he had been fired. Yeah, it was really one of the most tragic parts of this. And actually the thing, more than anything, that angered Evangeline Moore is when she found out when my book came out that they went out of their way to, they actually fired him before he was killed. And then as soon as he was killed, I described it as they became a cottage industry of raising money off Harry T. Moore and had fundraisers all around the country and in New York and Madison Square Garden raising money for the NAACP based on his murder. The murders of Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore have never been solved. It's possible that it was Moore's activities registering African Americans to vote that led to a bomb being placed under his home. Others believe it was his involvement in the infamous Groveland rape trial that inspired this act of domestic terrorism. I think it was a political assassination. I don't think it was just some old racist Klansman said, let's take out that uppity so-and-so. I think it was because he had registered 100,000 black voters in the Democratic Party the night of his death at Christmas dinner at his mother-in-law's house in the Grove. One of the last conversations he had with his best friend from Coco was about how the black vote was gonna determine the outcome of the 1952 governor's race. And he was going around the state saying the black vote will determine the outcome of every election in Florida. And I think that's why he was killed. I think he was killed to try to suppress black election power and it worked. Black voter registration plummeted after his death. It took another 10 or 15 years till the civil rights movement to get it back to where it was. So I, I think it was a political assassination more than just a individual hate crime. In 1949, Harry T. Moore was actively involved in seeking justice for four young black men accused of raping a white woman in Groveland. One of the accused was killed by law enforcement before he could be arrested. The other three men were tortured during questioning and had evidence manufactured against them by the notoriously racist sheriff Willis McCall. The Supreme Court overturned the original convictions and a new trial was scheduled. Ben Green. The day of a hearing for the new trial, Willis McCall and his deputy went to Rayford to pick him up on the way back to Lake County, claimed that the two prisoners jumped him and attacked him and he shot him. He emptied his revolver into him. He killed Sam Shepard, mortally, seriously, critically wounded Walter Irvin, who did survive, and told a completely different story, which is that McCall just yanked him out and started shooting. At that point, Harry T. Moore started calling for McCall to be removed from office, indicted for murder. Uh, he's telegramming and writing letters to the governor, to the U.S. attorney, to Thurgood Marshall, to the FBI, and then just six weeks later, he was blown up in his house. So the morning after the bombing in MIMS, people immediately connected the Groveland case to the Moore bombing. And when the FBI agents and the local deputies worked their way through the crowd that had gathered and said, why would anyone have wanted to kill Harry Moore? Everybody immediately said Groveland. 
Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore were killed 12 years before Medgar Evers, 14 years before Malcolm X, and 17 years before Martin Luther King Jr., but their legacy has been often overlooked. In a way, I think they're like multiple tragedies. One is they were killed, and the murders have never been solved. And then, in some ways, it's almost equally tragic they were forgotten. Um, I feel like the most poignant epitaph, really, is he was killed three years too early. If he had been killed in 1954, after the Brown decision, he would be Medgar Evers. He was Medgar Evers. He just did it before anybody was paying attention. He would have been in every history book. Everybody would have known his name. But it was 1951. There was no civil rights movement. There were no TV cameras filming the dogs attacking children in Birmingham. The murders were not solved. It was really just forgotten about. In recent years, Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore have been getting some of the recognition they deserve. An exhibit about the Moors is on display at the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. The Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex, built on the Moore Family Homestead in Mims, Florida, has a civil rights museum, a reflecting pool, and a replica of the Moore Family Home. It's been slow and gradual. There have been other contributions, the documentary film that PBS did. There's a song, you know, The Ballad of Harry T. Moore. You can find that on YouTube, Sweet Honey in the Rock. But I bet you if you went to Brevard County and took a poll, I bet still the majority of the people there don't even know who he is. I mean, the courthouse is named after him. There's the cultural center. I think they still, in a way, are fighting a losing battle against the tourist industry in Florida and the fact that how many people who moved here just came here in the last four, five, ten years. I didn't say this, but I think it's valid. He was our Martin Luther King. He was Florida's Martin Luther King, and yet I still think the majority of Floridians don't know who he is, not to mention probably 95% of, at least, of Americans have no idea who he is. Ben Green is author of the book Before His Time, The Untold Story of Harry T. Moore, America's First Civil Rights Martyr. A new edition of the book with updated material is being published by the Florida Historical Society Press. And this he says, our Harry Moore, as from the grave he cries, no bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say, freedom never dies. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where all FHS Press books are 50% off for the holidays, including Before His Time by Ben Green. You can also watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, and subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Greeting cards have all been sent. The Christmas rushes through. But I still have one wish to make. A special one for you. Merry Christmas, darling, we're apart.
that's true But I can dream And in my dreams I'm Christmasing with you Many soldiers in the Second Seminole War had to spend the holidays far away from their loved ones in the untamed wilderness of Florida. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Fort Christmas, which was originally constructed during the Second Seminole War, wasn't the only fort built during the Christmas season during that conflict. Yeah, that's right. Uh, during the Second Seminole War, uh, the federal government learned quickly that they had to spread their troops out uh, as wide as they could and sort of cast a wide net if they were going to have any luck at finding the Seminoles, you know, the, the very small bands of Seminoles. So what they did was set up um, three major columns that sort of moved south through the peninsula. Uh, and on that easternmost column through what was considered the Indian River country, you know, through parts of uh, Flagler County down into Volusia, Brevard, and uh, Indian River County, uh, there were a number of, of small forts that were built built uh, around the same time, 1837, 1838. Um, one of those forts was, was named Fort Anne, and it was actually in uh, what is now North Brevard County, actually part of the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge, just north of, of NASA. Uh, and this small fort, it was actually more of a, of a stockade. It was very a, a very crude structure. Um, and it was more of a, a, a kind of transition point from the Mos Mosquito Lagoon area into the Indian River area. Uh, and these columns of soldiers at that time were moving, uh, they were utilizing the Indian River Lagoon, this north-south waterway, to travel as uh, quickly and efficiently as possible down through the, through the interior. Um, and, and that was called upon, and, and uh, he was uh, attached to one of these columns uh, heading south into the peninsula and, uh, and found himself at, uh, at Fort Ann in uh, December of 1837. So from this journal, it seems as though the, the soldiers had a, a pretty de decent Christmas in Florida, even though it was wartime. I'd say so. And, and when we think about the Second Seminole War, we generally think about the hardships that, that a lot of these soldiers faced, which, which certainly occurred. I mean, it was very, very difficult uh, living at that time. And, and many of the soldiers, in fact, died of disease. Uh, but, but during the winter campaigns, when most of the action essentially was happening, um, throughout this journal, you, you know, you'll see Mott sort of talking about, uh, he mentions the Fourth of July quite a bit, but he always talks about Christmas every year that he was in Florida. And we have a really interesting passage from uh, December of 1837 when he was uh, uh, spending at least a week, I believe about a week, two weeks at, at Fort Ann. So they had a little bit of, uh, of time to kind of sit back and relax. There wasn't a whole lot of action going on. They were just drilling during the day. Uh, but, uh, but on Christmas Day, uh, they were allowed essentially to have the day off. And I'll read a quick passage here. They talk a little bit about their, their Christmas dinner, which was a little bit different than the traditional uh, uh, you know, New England Christmas dinner. Uh, but he says here, we reveled upon gopher soup and whisker toddy. Uh, which were the chief luxuries that graced our board. Uh, by and by, as regards to gopher soup, he says here, no epicure in the world but would smack his lips could he only get a taste of this rare dish no only, known only in Florida. And again, he talks about drinking whiskey <laughs> along with the, that gopher soup. Uh, but they, he goes on in other passages. They, they go chasing after snakes, and, and uh, uh, they hunt owls and, and egrets and some of the other birds that um, lived around the, the Mosquito Lagoon area. Um, but he talks a little bit, sort of uh, reflects on Christmas, and he says, 
but then it was Christmas, which only comes once a year. And to many of us, about those times, only came once in several years. So this is kind of interesting. You know, he talks about um, in later years while he was in Florida, even though it was Christmas, generally they were involved in some sort of military engagement. Uh, they were marching, they were drilling, because during the, the winter months, that was when the, the military, the U.S. military moved um, uh, very often. You know, they, they took advantage of the, of the, uh, of the weather. Um, so they, they really didn't get a, a chance uh, to kind of sit down and, and enjoy Christmas. Um, but he also talks about this uh, feast of reason and flow of soul uh, and, and uh, music. Essentially, there, was, there were a few of the uh, soldiers who uh, got a little too much whiskey and decided they could, uh, they could sing. And uh, he goes on to sort of describe their, uh, their revelries into the night and how they uh, um, probably disturbed some of the owls who would hoot at them periodically. <laughs> So even during this uh, this long extended conflict, uh, these guys seem to uh, enjoy their holiday. I'd say so. In fact, uh, a few days later on New Year's Day, they were again given a little bit of time off, and uh, he mentions taking a uh, uh, taking a dive into the Atlantic, which uh, back in Massachusetts uh, would have been impossible. But uh, at a uh, at a, a balmy eighty degrees, uh, they were able to uh, to strip down and enjoy a day at the beach. Well, thanks, Ben, and I hope you're having a happy holiday as well. Thank you. Happy holidays. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Part of the reason that the Spanish came to Florida in the 16th century was to spread Christianity, specifically Catholicism. Holly Baker has this look at the Spanish mission system. In the second half of the 16th century, the Kingdom of Spain's Philip II authorized Pedro Menendez to establish missions throughout the Floridas to convert indigenous people to Christianity. By the 17th century, there were dozens of Spanish missions in North Florida and the Panhandle. Dr. Daniel Murphy is an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida. He's also the author of several articles and books, including the book Constructing Floridians, Natives and Europeans in the Colonial Floridas, 1513-1783. Dr. Murphy recently talked to me about the mission system that developed in the Floridas between 1566 and 1675. Missionaries had been part of the Florida colonization venture on behalf of the Spanish and the French from the very beginning. They are almost always religious figures, if not a missionary, a priest, or someone like that on most of the expeditions, the DeSoto expeditions, things you hear of. It really intensified after um, 1565 when the French were kind of ousted from Atlantic coastal Florida by the Spanish, and then you had kind of the first real settlement regime come in under Pedro Menendez. He was the first governor. And he thought missionary work was going to be very valuable for Spain in terms of not just colonizing Florida, but forming relationships, positive relationships with the native peoples. 
This was also a part of kind of the, the general Spanish approach to North American colonization, whereas they didn't have a whole lot of colonists coming over. So they needed some way to defend it, and they believed that creating a viable mission system in the northern tier of Florida would be a good way to kind of almost set up a, a, a populated boundary, even if it wasn't necessarily of colonists or of armies. The mission system in Florida was a network of more than a dozen Spanish missions that stretched from St. Augustine to the Panhandle region near the Panama City area. These missions became the principal mode of Spanish colonization in Florida. There were also places where Native Americans and Europeans interacted on a daily basis, at the church, in the village square, or while trading with one another. Typically, there weren't large numbers, so you could have maybe one to two friars or one to two priests administering to the entire mission. Very rarely would you have more than that. But you'd probably have dozens or perhaps hundreds of natives that either lived in the immediate vicinity of the mission itself, sometimes living in the mission or kind of right outside of it. But you almost always had some type of garrison created there, too, by uh, the Spanish soldiers. Again, usually it wasn't large in numbers, but the idea was... The mission either needed to be protected or it needed to show the military might of Spain. And the idea was it would promise that there was a greater Spanish military capability behind it. The, the missions were almost always set up near pre-existing native villages, and that was the idea. The idea was to take the mission to the natives. So you, you had kind of a vibrant native culture surrounding the missions itself. So in addition to maybe getting spiritual salvation, they could also get material wealth as well, all of the missions. The Spanish mission system was in place for more than a hundred years. Almost all of the Spanish missions were gone by 1708. Dr. Murphy told me more about what led to the end of the Spanish mission system in Florida. Disease played a massive role in depopulating Florida of its native peoples. We have numbers as high as the hundreds of thousands of natives living in peninsular Florida before colonization. By the time the mission system really falls apart in the early 1700s. This possible hundreds of thousands of natives were gone and you only had really maybe a dozen um, uh, or 12,000 natives and even that's a high number and it's also for the entire peninsula. So these 12,000 natives would have been highly dispersed. And even though the, the missions were places where some natives went for protection, they couldn't be protected from diseases. And in fact, of course, because of the way the mission functioned, it was one of the worst places to be if you were trying to avoid disease because new people were coming all the time, which potentially brought more. Today, only two Spanish mission sites are open to the public in Florida, the Nombre de Dios Mission in St. Augustine and Mission San Luis near Tallahassee, the only restored mission in Florida. As Dr. Murphy explains, the brief existence of the Spanish mission system can be seen as a symbol of Spanish colonization in Florida. The system as a whole was really significant and unique because it was really the main presence of the Spanish in Florida for a for hundred years at least. If you think of Spanish Florida, if you're thinking of what they brought, that's what they brought. It was the, the missions. And the fact that they had so much trouble with them and that they ultimately fell apart really is kind of a, um, you know, it's a sub-narrative to the Spanish in Florida anyway, uh, or overall, in the sense that if you track the mission system, it kind of shows you the greatest extent of Spanish influence in Florida, but it also shows you how it's declining. And so by 1700, or the beginning of the 1700s, when the mission system is collapsing, the Spanish presence in Florida is, is negligible. It's, it's Spanish Florida name only. The Spanish aren't controlling it, and of course the English know this, the French know it, and ultimately the U.S. knows it, and that's why it was 
very easy to, to subsequently ouster the Spanish. Remember, the Spanish were pretty much gone in the 1760s for the first time. You could call it a slow death. So for 60 years, their empire was hemorrhaging. And you can connect that to the mission system as kind of a symbol. The mission system is kind of symbolic, I guess, is the best way to say it, of the Spanish in Florida. It was limited. It did have an impact, but it, it was fleeting. It didn't last very long. And once it was gone, the Spanish power, if they ever had any in Florida, was largely gone too. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can always find us on Facebook and at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker, Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. From all of us here at the Florida Historical Society, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and best wishes for the new year. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.